Amen. I don't, I'll say it, I assume you want to say it, I'll say it for all of you as well as for myself. What a blessing to be in God's house on God's day, um, singing his praises. He is worthy of them. And my prayer is that as we come to his word this morning, we'll see all the more how worthy he is. Uh, for the last several weeks, um, and maybe a number of you, are, some are not necessarily here each week, but we as a church have been in the book of Acts. We've been in chapter 2. And it's in this chapter that we see the Holy Spirit poured out on God's people. And this is the fulfillment, Peter said, of the words the prophet Joel spoke some nine centuries earlier. So what's happening on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 was foretold 900 years earlier by the prophet Joel. God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, they were set apart. They were marked out by the law written on tablets of stone. The law was external to them, but that was what marked them as separate. Now, God's new covenant people, that's us, are set apart not by the law on tablets of stone, but by the law written upon the tablets of our hearts. We are a people who were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath, and now we've been raised up to spiritual life. We are alive who were dead. We are hearing who were deaf. We are speaking who were dumb. We are seeing who were blind. This is the work that God has done in us. We have life in the Holy Spirit. But the question is, on what basis has all of this happened? Right? On, on what ground has this mighty miracle been worked in our hearts? We saw last week that we are living now, not only in the days of God's eschatological salvation, and that's a word we use here, eschatological, meaning climactic fulfillment, the day promised. That's, that's the day we're living in. Not only, though, the day of salvation, but the day of God's eschatological judgment. It's the day of both. And so the horrific destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, in blood and fire and vapor of smoke, when the sun was, as it were, turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That was the beginning of the judgment of the last day. The judgment that is coming upon the whole world. And so, this wonderful, it's, and so Joel concludes his prophecy, given this eschatological salvation, the spirit poured out, the judgment, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, he concludes with these words, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's that wonderful, powerful name of the Lord upon whom we may call and be saved that Peter goes on now to proclaim. And that I'm going to proclaim today and that we get to hear him. It's this name we celebrate not only at Christmas, but every day of the year. And so Peter begins in verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
I imagine him raising his voice loudly. Everyone, he has their attention already, but now he's saying, Men of Israel, listen. Listen to these words. Earlier, he said something along the same lines. He said, Men of Judea, all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. So he's obviously serious about what he has to say. And we know Peter would address himself in the same way to each of us this morning. Let this be known to you. Give heed to my words. Listen to my words. And why should we listen? So that we might be saved. So that we might be saved from what? From blood and fire and vapor of smoke. From the great and awesome day of the Lord that the scriptures say is coming upon the whole world. But not just saved from that. We are saved unto something wonderful. We are saved so that the spirit might be poured out upon us. So then let us this morning give heed to these words. Let us listen. And I'm listening with you. Men of Israel, listen to these words, Peter says. Jesus the Nazarene. Usually you'd like to begin with something more auspicious than that. This is a way to immediately proclaim the foolishness of your message. Nazareth was, as one commentator says, a small, unimportant town in western Lower Galilee with perhaps 400 inhabitants. We have a way of romanticizing things today, but there was nothing romantic about Nazareth. Never was, never will be. To come from Nazareth was, by every human standard, to be a nobody. Nobody special. So we read in John chapter 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, as as many probably would have, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So does Peter try to hide Jesus' despised and lowly origins? Is he kind of, well, I know he's from Nazareth, but let's not mention this here at the beginning of my sermon on the day of Pentecost. No, it's like the first word out of his mouth. Jesus of Nazareth. He proclaims it at the beginning. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus was still a small child, Joseph and Mary came and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This, is one, this wasn't an accident of history, a fluke. He wasn't supposed to grow up there. This was where he was supposed to grow, where it was said that he would. Again, not a specific prophecy saying Nazareth is the town. But the scriptures did say that the coming Messiah in his servant form, servant, that he would grow up like a root out of parched ground. He would have no stately form or majesty that men should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. The scriptures did say he would be despised, and to grow up in Nazareth and then claim you're somebody like the Son of God is to invite being despised. The scriptures said that men would not esteem him. Again, we must not romanticize the village of Nazareth. Could anything good come from there? But now Peter proclaims this title as if he was proud of it. (laughs) 
as if it wasn't itself a part of the revelation of who Jesus is. So the next two times, this was interesting. The next two times that Peter talks about Jesus in Acts, which is chapter 3 and chapter 4, guess how he names Jesus? Jesus the Nazarene. He repeats it. Stephen, when he proclaims Jesus, he proclaims Jesus the Nazarene. Paul, the same thing. Jesus the Nazarene. It's a repeated refrain. But maybe most interesting of all, The resurrected, glorified Jesus himself, when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? What did the glorified, resurrected Jesus answer? You can guess what he answered. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. What's the big deal? That he is the Nazarene is a part of the revelation of who he is so that we might know him. It is a sign then in your handout of the depths to which he humbled himself. In fulfillment of the scriptures. And now as they proclaim the Nazarene, it is a reminder of the heights to which he has been exalted. Although he existed, Paul says, in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave by being born in the likeness of men. And so when we think about it, what is it when someone who exists in the form of God comes down? I mean, what's the difference between Nazareth and Jerusalem? What's the difference between Nazareth and Rome? What's the difference between Nazareth and all the greatest, highest, most sophisticated cities in the world? Nazareth simply reveals how much he humbled himself, and how highly he has been exalted. He who was with God and was God from all eternity became flesh and dwelt among us. That means living and growing up in Nazareth, a small, unimportant town in western lower Galilee with perhaps 400 inhabitants. It is this Jesus The Nazarene, Peter says, who was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Okay, so even though Jesus was grew up in this obscure village of Nazareth, he didn't live his life in secret. So all those who were listening to Peter preach, his whole crowd, his whole audience They had all seen and they all knew of these miracles, these works of power, these wonders, these signs that God did through Jesus in their midst. They all knew about it, which we say puts us immediately at a disadvantage, right? Because, well, I didn't see them. Am I supposed to take Peter's word for this? It's important that I stop here for a moment. Say We need to understand that the miracles God did through Jesus were never intended to prove something all by themselves. As though they could be the ultimate authority and ground of people's faith. We say, well, if you show me enough miracles, I'll believe. No, that's not true. Miracles were never intended to be the ground of of faith. Miracles, what they do is they come alongside of and they bear witness to, they attest, 
the word of God. And God's word is self-authenticating because it is the word of God. That means three things. First, miracles as attesting signs are always given as God's condescension. God doesn't give them to us because he has to or because he knows, well, we can't believe his word unless we see miracles. He condescends to us because of the fleshly weakness that we, is within us. He condescends to our fallen human condition. Second, if my heart is already hardened to God's self-authenticating word, then you know what? No matter how many miracles I see or you see, it will never convince you or bring you to saving faith. I may, be, I may see the miracles, but if my heart is hardened to God's word, the miracles will not bring me. They can only increase condemnation. And the third thing, this explains why in the Bible, miracles are reserved. Miracles, the Bible is not just full of random miracles from beginning to end. Miracles come at specific times, at specific moments in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan and of his redemptive word. So at different times, God has spoken especially. And when God speaks, he condescends to our weakness and accompanies that spoken word with miracles attesting that word. We see then why God does not give miracles to everyone who hears the gospel like you and me. That would be pointless. It would contradict the purpose and the meaning of miracles. In other words, it would contradict what the Bible tells me about the hardness of the human heart. If miracles could just convince anyone, well then, our hearts are not so hard after all, are they? It would contradict what the Bible tells me about the self-authenticating authority and truthfulness of the word of God. If I need miracles to believe God's word, then God's word isn't isn't quite the highest authority after all, is it? Having said all that, now we're in a place to appreciate what Peter says. The life and the ministry of Jesus the Nazarene, who is himself the eternal word of God, and who spoke only the words that the Father gave him to speak. His life has been attested already by the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him in fulfillment of the scriptures. That's a part of why I believe. That's a part of the confirmation of my faith is the miracles Jesus did. You say, well, you weren't there. You didn't see him. doesn't matter. The self-authenticating word of God has been accompanied by the miracles and wonders and signs Jesus did. And so my faith is strengthened. This is why Peter brings this up and why he would bring it up for us. So when John the Baptist sent to Jesus to ask him, are you the promised Messiah or should we look for someone else? Jesus said to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. This is what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The word. And so all those works of power that God did through Jesus 
in fulfillment of the scriptures. They all were testifying to the word, the gospel that Jesus preached. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing from himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in the same manner. The works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the works of power that God did through Jesus attested, and they still are attesting today to the reality he was sent from God. That he only ever did the will of the one who sent him. And that the words he spoke were life and truth. Let us then wrestle and struggle with what Peter says next. In light of all of that, Peter continues, This man, and that's what he wants us to get, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, You nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. Again, we can, in some strange way, we can romanticize even the cross. As if it was just Jesus who died on a cross and not thousands and thousands of other low-life criminals who were put to death in the same way. It was usually reserved for slaves, political rebels, but even more significantly for the Jew, to be hung on a tree, uh, the stake of wood here, was a sign you were a lawbreaker. And, you know, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we may understand this, but, but God just attested to Jesus by the wonders and signs and miracles he did through him in, in their midst. What are we to make then of that he is hung on a tree as a lawbreaker and one cursed in your handout, cursed of God? The Apostle Paul writes this, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, here's the key word now, obedient to the point of death, even death, on what so many other low-life criminals died on, a cross. I want to ask you this, to whom was Jesus the Nazarene obedient? Who did he obey? He only always did the works that the Father had given him to do. His food was to do, even in death, the will of the one who sent him. So here's the key word in your handout. This man, the very one who was attested to the people by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him, the one whose food was to do the will of the one who sent him, this man This man, this man was delivered over to death on a cross by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. No, God did not put his own son to death. God forbid, may it never be. God did not put his own son to death. Those who talk about cosmic child abuse fail to understand 
It was the Jewish people who did this by the hands of lawless men. And yet, in a mystery that can never be penetrated by me or you, it was this greatest evil that has ever been committed in all the history of the world. We're not being dramatic. We're just stating the truth. That took place according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God foreknew it insofar as he had planned it. Centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah said this about the coming Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Why did he not open his mouth? Because he was being obedient. Well, that Jesus was a Nazarene, that he had performed miracles, that he had been nailed to a cross and put to death, all the people knew already, everyone knew that. But if they were to ever fully understand what those things mean, those historical facts mean, if they were ever to understand the mystery of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, if they were to understand that, then Peter needed to tell them something else they didn't know. You nailed this man to a cross. You can almost see him pointing the finger by the hands of lawless men, and you put him to death. And then, he says, while you did that, God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I want to ask you this question. What is the agony of death? And I mean, think about it. What is it? What do you think he means by the agony of death? Some people die quite peacefully. The agony of death certainly does not primarily refer to the physical sufferings that may or may not accompany death. It neither does it refer to any fear of the unknown. Is the agony that I just don't know what it's like? What comes? What is? What is this like? That's not. That's not the agony of death either. The agony of death resides in what death is. In the very nature of death as it is this. God's judicial sentence of condemnation for your sin and for mine. So God commanded Adam in the garden. From any tree of the garden you may surely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. If death was natural to us, none of us would fear it. But death is not natural. And therein lies its true agony. Death is, in your handout, the judicial sentence. The sentence of the judge. That God has passed upon all men, all women, and all children. Because in Adam, all sin. So what does it mean when this man dies? Insofar as Jesus was nailed to a cross and hung on a tree, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God was declaring something to us. 
He was declaring that this was indeed a judicial sentence of condemnation. When you see Jesus hanging on the tree, what do you see? You see the execution of God's judicial sentence of condemnation upon sin in death. This is what we see. But then we remember this wonderful mystery. That Jesus was obedient. Even to the point of death. That even in death, Jesus was doing the work that the Father had given him to do. Oh. And so we understand that the death Jesus suffered on the cross and his hanging there on the tree as we see him there was not the judicial sentence that God had passed upon him for his own sin as the people imagined was the case, but the sentence of death and condemnation that was in your handout due to all of God's chosen covenant people. He was pierced through, says the prophet Isaiah, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Paul says it simply. He became a curse for us. This is why the one whom we put to death, according to God's predetermined plan, God raised up and so put an end to the agony of death forever. This is why it was impossible for Jesus to be held in death's power. And so in the resurrection of Jesus, something mighty, something wonderful happens. The very nature of death is changed. What death was, it no longer is for those who are united with Jesus by faith. In the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free, free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. If we no longer have the fear of death and the agony of death is taken away, it is ended forever. And so when God raised Jesus up again, he did what could have been done in no other way. He put an end to the agony of death. Behold then, okay, where we've been, we behold the completed work of Jesus the Nazarene in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So the man that God attested with miracles and wonders and signs in life, and remember what that tells us about him in life, that that he only did the will of his father, that the words he spoke were from the father, that he was sent from God, that the words he spoke were life and truth. He was then delivered over to death. And we remember what we know about that death, that it was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and that even in that death, he was being obedient. To his father. This man. God. Raised up again. Thus putting an end to the agony of death. Skipping then ahead now. To verse 32. For today. We listen as Peter picks up again. Where he left off. This Jesus. Now I I hope. He does that purposefully brothers and sisters. This Jesus. He wants us to remember. This is the Jesus. 
This is the one I'm talking about. God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, in further fulfillment of the scriptures, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, he, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. Okay, so after proclaiming the completed work of Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, which is where we've been this morning, Peter comes back now. We might almost forget it's the day of Pentecost, right? This is Pentecost. The Spirit's poured out. Now Peter comes back to that after this big, right, talking about Jesus. He comes back to the Holy Spirit poured out from heaven on all of God's new covenant people. Now remember what Peter said earlier, and if you weren't here, then we would just read it. Here it is. This is what he said. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days. Last is eschatos. So the eschatological days. God says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all new covenant Israel. Only now, here we go, in Acts chapter 2, who is it who pours out the spirit upon us? In Joel, God said, I will pour out my spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it is this man. Now, certainly that tells us that Jesus is God, but it tells us something else. It is this man, let's review, this Jesus the Nazarene, whom God attested in life with miracles and signs and wonders, who was delivered over to death according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and whom God has now raised up again, thus putting an agony to death forever. It is this man, this Jesus, who having been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, now pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. What's the big deal about that? It is only when we understand the completed work of Jesus, the Messiah, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that we can understand what it means that he is the one. He is the one who pours out the Spirit upon us. What does it mean? Well, the Spirit of God. The Old Testament saints knew the Spirit as the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, today he is also to be known to us as the Spirit of Christ. What does that mean? When the Spirit of Christ is poured out on us by Christ himself. All of that infinite saving value of Jesus' life, which God attested with miracles and wonders and signs, and Jesus' death, which was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and Jesus' resurrection, through which God put an end to the agony of death, all of that has now been sealed and applied to us. Because the Spirit of Christ, okay? We know the Spirit of God now, brothers and sisters, as the Spirit of Christ. 
This is the privilege of living in the eschatological days of salvation. Because the Spirit of Christ has been poured out upon us by Christ, we have been been brought into a living, vital union with Christ. So that all our sin has been imputed to him who suffered the agony of death in our stead. Isn't that what Peter just talked about? And all the righteousness and obedience of his perfect life has been imputed to us. Therefore, we are forgiven. I have no greater news I could announce to you today. We are forgiven. The guilt of all our sin has been pardoned for Christ's sake. Therefore, we are justified. God, the righteous judge, declares the ungodly sinner, the ungodly sinner, to be righteous for Christ's sake. And now some people, you know what they say now? They say, that's just a legal fiction. You're just, how could, that's impossible. That's a fiction. That's a lie. If you're ungodly, how can God declare you righteous? You know what they do not understand? They do not understand. And may it not be true of anyone here today. The pouring out of the Spirit of Christ by Christ. So that we are brought into a living, vital union with Christ. He in us. We in him. This is no legal fiction. It's the fruit. It is the fruit of that real union we have with him through his spirit poured out upon us. And so the, Holy, the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth. See, sometimes it is said that we minimize the spirit and we should be careful we don't. But we need to understand, are you seeing now the way that the Son, Christ, the Jesus, the Nazarene, and the Spirit, and the Father are all working together for our salvation? The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, But you were washed, cleansed, and forgiven. You were sanctified, consecrated as holy, set apart unto God. But you were justified. Declared to be righteous. And then what does he say? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit. Of our God. How humbling it is. I ask you just to think about it. To ask yourself for a moment. How can it be. That the triune God. Father. Son. And Holy Spirit. Is at work in your salvation. Yours. Yours. If you've put your faith in Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work in your salvation. God the Father, from all eternity, purposed, planned, and decreed your redemption. If we look at it in Acts here, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, there it is. God the Son, from all eternity, undertakes to effect, to bring about, to accomplish our redemption. If we look at Acts, Jesus the Nazarene, attested by God in life, 
nailed to a cross by the hand of lawless men, and then raised up again. And God the Holy Spirit, from all eternity, undertakes to apply and seal to all whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world this redemption that Christ has accomplished. Coming back to Acts. Having received from the Father, there's the Father. The promise of the Holy Spirit, there's the Spirit. He, Jesus, has poured out this which you both see and hear. And so we understand now. We understand how this glorious mystery of the Trinity, it is indeed, as we confess, the foundation of all our communion with God. And of all our comfortable dependence upon him. I call you Christians. I would invite you to spend your days thinking on your salvation as it has come forth from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It will not leave you unchanged. And so we see in this eternal counsel of redemption, because there wasn't this moment when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit suddenly decided, let's do this. No, this was the eternal counsel of redemption from all eternity past. We see in this council of redemption, as it's now been revealed to us in the preaching of the gospel, which is what we have this morning, the preaching of the gospel. Do you know what is being revealed to us this morning in this preaching of the gospel? It is the eternal council of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this council of redemption, as it is revealed to us in the preaching of the gospel, we have the fullest revelation of the glory of God. We don't go away from this patting ourselves on the back or saying, oh, shoo, good for me. We go away from this falling down before God in worship and joining all the saints and angels to him, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. There's a sense in which I'd like to stop there, but we cannot. Because there's still just one pressing question. What is the means by which God makes us partakers of the Spirit? Because if, if, if we don't have the Spirit, we have no life. We have no salvation. We don't have Christ. If we don't have the Spirit, we don't have Christ. And if we don't have Christ, we're still in our sins. We cannot be forgiven. We cannot be justified. What then is the means by which we are made partakers of, Christ, of the Spirit and so partakers of this redemption that is in Christ Jesus? Well, it can't be by any work that we do. Doesn't that now go without saying? Don't you see that and know that and feel it? Because the salvation that I need is from the condemnation that all my works deserve. I need to be saved from the condemnation all my works deserve, so then how can I be made a partaker of the Spirit? It cannot be by any work I do because I could never gain. Look what I'm trying to gain. 
the perfect righteousness of Christ. What work can I do by which I could gain that? We're reminded then of the wonderful word that we started out with this morning. That God spoke through the prophet Joel. It will be in that day, in that eschatological day, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there not an invitation in those words? Is Peter not calling all of us to do just that? To call upon the name of the Lord. Here is no work that we do. It's not like God said, well, he called really intensely. I think he called earnestly enough. No, this is simply the cry of faith in your handout. Faith that rests in the promise of God. Because we have each one of us this morning heard the gospel preached. And now the response that is required of us is simple faith. Faith that cries out and calls upon his name. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? There is, there is the finished, completed work of Jesus all summed up in that moment of the cross. This is the only thing I want to learn from you, says Paul. Did you receive the Spirit? Wait a minute. How do we go from Christ portrayed as crucified to receiving the Spirit? Because to receive the Spirit is to to receive all the benefits of Christ crucified. So Paul asks, did you receive the Spirit who conveys to you all the saving benefits of Christ? Did you receive that Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing, as you have all done this morning, hearing with faith? And that is my confidence as I come to preach the Word. It is God's promise that he works through the preaching of his word, through the hearing of his word, he works through that to work faith in you and in me. Paul asks again, does he who provides you with the Spirit, we know what the Spirit does, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. As he, just as Abraham believed God, and now look what, Paul, look what Paul does. He doesn't say Abraham believed God and he had the Spirit poured out upon him. I'm not saying that's, that's a different topic. He says Abraham believed God and righteousness was counted to him. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So that those who are of faith, those are the sons of Abraham. We are counted righteous even as he was. Christ, here we come back to Christ, we've never really lost sight of Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, what is the blessing of Abraham? It is the blessing of being counted righteous by faith alone. That the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive, and then here we come, did we lose sight of the Spirit? No. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The Spirit who does what? Who applies to you and to me all the work of Christ for our forgiveness and justification through faith.
Do you know, even now, this hearing with faith? You were hearing, but is it a hearing with faith? And I don't assume you don't. I mean, if you do, then what a joyful thing to answer. Have you received the promise of the Spirit through faith? And having received from the promise of the Spirit, do you know by faith that you have been united with Jesus, you in him, he in you, so that all the saving benefits of his life, death, and resurrection have all been applied to you, so that his perfect righteousness has been imputed to you and all your sins imputed to his account. Are you forgiven? Are you justified? Are you redeemed? What a wonderful gift is the gift of faith. Because this faith is no simple I assent in my head, that's true. It is a living thing. It is a vital thing. It is an active thing, this faith. It is a faith that calls. If I have a faith that has not called, it is not faith. It is a faith that calls upon the name of the Lord, resting. Not, remember, because then we start thinking, I don't know if I've called hard enough. No, no. This is a faith that calls resting fully in his promise in Christ alone. What is this name upon which we call? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. I just want to pray together. Lord, Lord, we thank you for mysteries too great, too wonderful for us to ever plumb or comprehend. But Lord, let us us come this morning to know them more fully. Let us rejoice in the work of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From all eternity past, counseling our redemption. And now bringing it about and applying it to us. Oh Lord, such things are too high for us. They are more than we can understand. But to you then be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. And oh Lord, should there be a soul here today who is not called upon the name of Jesus and been saved? Should there be a soul here today who does not have the spirit of Christ? 
who has not been united with Christ so that all of his or her sins have been transferred to Christ who bore the penalty in, in our place. If there should be a soul here today who is not at this moment covered and clothed in the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus, oh Lord, work, work repentance and faith in them today, we ask that we might have the joy of welcoming into your family. Father, we thank you for the joy that we do have already as as Christians. Thank you that we can sing, that we can celebrate, that that we can reflect and contemplate at this time of year and on this day. Help us and enable us as we do that now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.